Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. Let's jump in. We're in this series in Judges. And we have been uh, working through it for a bit. We're about halfway through the book of Judges and this series. And um, one of the things I would say is if you're new or just caught like the last week or two, I would encourage you to jump online and go back and catch the beginning of the series because Judges is not a book commonly taught in churches. Um, There are lessons from judges that happen. Uh, A lot of times people will preach a little bit about Gideon, preach a little bit about Samson, but there are a lot of things in judges that don't often come up in a Sunday series. And so I would just say, go back, catch the beginning of it, kind of hear the overview of what this whole book's all about. Why are we doing this series? Why would we preach through such a kind of an uncommon and particularly graphic, a lot of difficult stories, and, and, and hear that for yourself so that you kind of understand why we're doing what we're doing. Um, today, we are in kind of this middle part where we're camping out looking at Gideon and his life, and we're going to be in Judges chapter 7, and that's going to be mostly where we'll camp out today. Um, this particular part of the story, it's often looked at like uh, the underdog story. This is where we get to see kind of Gideon uh, framed up as an underdog, uh, highly unlikely to win, uh, voted most uh, least likely to succeed, that kind of thing. And I just want to give you like a, a reference to have the right kind of frame of mind. Like if, if we think about this as an underdog story, you could say like WSU Cougs going to Georgia and somehow winning, right? That would be an upset, like to end all upsets, but it would be fun to root for them. This scenario going on with Gideon is a lot more like taking the Pullman High School Greyhound High School boys and sending them against Tom Brady and the Buccaneers, right? If, if, we, if we did that, like there would, it would be really fun for about 30 seconds, and then all the high school boys would be flat, right? But it would be fun to root for him, but there's just no way. Nobody in their right mind would ever go like, oh, the high school guys have a chance. That is the right frame of mind to understand the odds that get stacked up against Gideon in this story. It's pretty unbelievable the way things go here. Uh, So let's jump in. Judges chapter 7 goes like this. So Jerubbabel, that's Gideon, and his army uh, got up early and went as far as the spring of Herod. The armies of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. So the Midianite armies are enormous. They're huge. They are described as like a swarm of locusts. They say the camels are so vast, they look like sand on a seashore, too many to count. Like this is not a small army that's assembled. For sure, the biggest group of people Gideon had ever seen or the Israelites at that time. So there's this huge army. God's calling Gideon to rally the troops to come up against this army. And it's sort of like Gideon's going, okay, he's being faithful, he's listening, we'll kind of watch, we'll look back through sort of trail of events as we go through this, this sermon today. But we get to this spot where Gideon's like, all right, now, like, what do you got for me next, God? Like, what, what do I do next? And he's like, you have way too many people. This is not the kind of response you would expect to hear from God at this point. Like, my wisdom for you is that you're too strong. 
But what's interesting is we learn right here in the beginning that there's a really specific reason that God is, is um, calling Gideon to go into this battle with less. It's because, it's because where you're at right now and where the people are at right now If I give the Midianites into your hand, if I help you win this battle or win the battle outrightly for you, your heart is not ready to go home and give credit to God, right? If we remember, it wasn't very long ago, like last week we looked at, it was just not much prior to this in time where Gideon dealt with things in his own house. He tore down the altar to Baal. He tore down the Asherah pole. And all of the Israelites are like, wait a minute, who did all these bad things to these gods we're worshiping? They were still defending false gods. And so God's like, your heart's not ready Like if this thing goes the way you think it will go, you'll take the credit for it. And so God continues. He says, verse three, therefore tell the people whoever is timid or afraid that they may leave the mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. Now you could look at this and say that this might be a good thing, right? Like, uh, 10,000 people that are courageous and want to be there and are ready to go to war as opposed to 32,000 people where two-thirds of them are scared out of their wits, like maybe it's better to get rid of all the people who are afraid. And, and I'd rather go with the goers, right? The ones that want to be there, that are ready to fight, that are going to go for it. And, and I think one of the things that we learn is that, that there's something about like letting go of the people who are uh, just consumed with fear, And it's like, if we keep all these people here, not only is it going to be an issue about who takes credit for this win, but there's something about like, if two thirds of the people around you are fearful, what would it have done to the 10,000 courageous if we just carried on with business as usual? Like, would they have been as courageous if everybody around them was telling them about all the reasons why this was a bad idea? I don't know, there's probably a little bit of application in our lives for that today. There is no shortage of people who are afraid, who are wrestling with stuff, who can tell you all the reasons why things are a bad idea. And I think there's even just a little side note lesson in here that there's something powerful about letting go of the people who are around you who are consumed with fear and surrounding yourself with people who are courageous and are like, I'm in which is not an easy thing to do in the world that we're living in. Um, So God uh, is at work turning the odds against Gideon. It gets worse. Uh, Verse 4, or better, depending on how you're looking at it. Uh, Verse 4, but the Lord told Gideon, there's still too many. Uh, Bring them down to the spring, and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, uh, the Lord told him, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. In the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. Only 300 men drank from their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. Then the Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. So Gideon collected the provisions and the ram's horns of the other warriors and sent them home but he kept the 300 with him. Now, this particular little chunk of scripture is a a piece that people are familiar with, kind of like the the story in Gideon with the fleece. Like there's some some, uh, highlight reel 
uh, parts of these stories that even if you don't know the whole story of Gideon, you don't understand what Judges is all about, you may have heard some teaching on these particular parts. This instance where these soldiers go to the water and one group kind of drinks this way and one group drinks this way has been used to teach all kinds of lessons at different times. People have preached sermons on it. There's devotionals on it. It comes up in a book or an online Devo thing you might do. And people are trying to stretch to make these illustrations that, well, maybe because the people that laid down to get a drink and they put their head and their mouth in the water, there was something about their, they, they were vulnerable. They, they made themselves vulnerable. And so like as a Christian, don't ever make yourself vulnerable. And they're like, what? Like, what are we, like, where are we going with that? Like, what is that coming from? And it's like, well, these other ones, they, they drank and they had their face up. And so they, they weren't lazy and they were ready. You should always be, you know, have your, be at the ready or something. And it's like, here's the truth. None of that stuff is in the text. It's just not. None of that is in the text. If you're, if you're trying to look at this story and go, what can I know for sure is true? What we can know for sure is true is that God unequivocally made it clear that he was in the business of whittling down the odds against Gideon on purpose so that there was no way Gideon or any of the Israelites could get a big head and think we actually pulled this off. Like we know that's going on because God said we're going to do this like like this is the reason you have you have too many people so we're going to go through some processes of eliminating people and so that's what we can know about this story and so if you ever come across a, a devo or something or you hear a lesson and it's like oh they're trying to make this illustration because this guy drank this way or this guy drank this way you can sort of just go like delete that right and stick with the story stick with the actual Text And so he whittles this army down to 300 men. And what we can see for sure is that God was deliberately weakening God's army. He was deliberately weakening uh, Gideon's army, sorry. And I think there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from this. I think just one of the things I just want to remind us, like this is at the very heart of why we wanted to do this series, because... when we dig into God's word, when we stick with the truth, when we let God's word tell us who God is, we can stay grounded and stay good. But when we look throughout the book of Judges, what we see over and over and over again are these hard stories where God's people are following God. They live in an ungodly culture surrounded by people who are not on board with what they believe is true. And over time, it permeates them in their families, in their workplaces, in the way they do money, in the way that they worship and do religious practices until they get to the point where it's watered down and they're no longer actually doing God as God alone. They're doing God plus or instead of God. And it gets to the point where there's oppression and God takes a step back and it's like, all right, if this is the path you're choosing, this is the path you get. And it leads to oppression and hardship and terrible things happening to them until they cry out for God for help and they plead for help. God comes along to help and to rescue and to redeem. And there's this cycle that we see going on. And the thing is, the world that we're living in is not a world anymore where the devil is like just subtly, sneakily trying to whisper people away over to his side. It's not like, hey, you know, just like, like, let's just tweak the truth just a little bit. Like the world that we live in right now, the truth 
is hated and lies are absolutely in fashion. They're popular. Things that are blatant lies that do not line up with God's word, God's character, God's plan, God's story are absolutely popular. And if you don't believe what other people believe, now it's not just like, hey, we don't agree anymore. Or it's like, I don't think we'd be friends anymore. Now it's like, I actually hate you. There's this disdain for people that don't believe what you believe, don't think like you think, don't talk like you talk. And so if you're going to be a person who is going to hold to God's word as truth, I'm telling you, you are going to live in a world where you're going to feel like an outcast and an alien and an enemy and at odds, and it's going to be uncomfortable. And that's a difficult thing to do day after day after day without starting to slide down the slippery slope. And so for us, the world we're living in, to walk the walk as Christians in these times, there is a lot we can learn from going back and unpacking a story, a book in God's story that shows where people have like, how did they do it right? How did they get off track? What happened to them? How did they turn the corner? And we get to see those stories over and over and over again. It's so much better for us to learn from history than the school of hard knocks. Instead of like being a, oh man, things were going so good. What happened? Our church totally fell apart and all these things happened and and my life fell apart and I'm crying out to God for help. And it's like, man, let's, let's learn from the mistakes of people that have gone before us so that we don't have to keep going through that cycle. So that we can stay right with God. And that's what we're going to see going over and over and over throughout the story of Judges. And so there's some lessons that I think are important for us to learn as we go through this. One of them is that when God wants to use us, he will often weaken us, which sort of feels not right. When God wants to use us, sometimes he will weaken us. Now, I don't want you to hear the wrong thing. God is not out to hurt you. But in his sovereign understanding of the big picture in his plan knowing who you are since before you were born having plans in store for you that are good to help you not to hurt you that's who we know God is and that's what we know God thinks about each of you personally then we know that that God is for our good but there are times where it's like I need to grow your trust and your faith and in order to do that I've got to weaken you Now, when we look at the story of Gideon, he's weakening the army. Like, literally, his strength is in the numbers of soldiers because they're about to go into a battle. In your life, what would it look like for God to weaken your army? And you may be like, I didn't know I had one, right? Where is your strength? In the situation you're in, the circumstances that you're facing, what are your biggest assets? If it's a marriage thing you're going through, if it's a finance thing, if it's a job thing, if it's a starting a business thing, it's a finishing a degree thing, it's a pick where you're at and what's going on in your life and go, in order for this to go the way I want it to go, what is my biggest asset? And then stop and go have a conversation with God about like, should I be bringing all of me? Should I be bringing all of my strength or, or where am I at with this? Because when God wants to use us, he's often in the business of weakening us, like actually kind of depleting our strength so that we make sure we give credit where credit is due, that God is for us and walking out ahead of us. There's all kinds of other things that we can learn in here. Um, 
One of the things that I think was a, a great statement I read in one of the studies I was reading about this as I was studying on Judges, it says, if dependence on God is the goal, then weakness is an advantage. And we live in a world where we definitely don't see weakness as an advantage. But the priorities are different. And so if, if our goal is to be just sold out, all in, depending on God, trusting him, day by day, moment by moment, in our life, in our finances, in our relationships, then us not having it all figured out, not always being strong enough to do it on our own, and being weak is actually an advantage. Paul talks about that when he wrote to the church in Corinth. He actually said to them something that if you just sort of glance, read it at a glance, it sounds sort of weird, Honestly, Paul wrote to him and he says that he is excited to boast about his weakness so that it makes it obvious that Christ, that, that, that Jesus is with him, that God is for him, that it's God's power that is, uh, things are being accomplished. And it's like, if you could just say that in regular language for us today, it's like Paul saying, listen, you guys all see me as this apostle, right? I'm out. He's, he's famous everywhere he goes. People have heard of him before he gets there. And he's like, but what I need you to understand is I actually am excited to tell you about the things that I am not that great at. I'm actually grateful that I get the opportunity to get to know you enough that I can be transparent and vulnerable with you that I don't have all the answers, that there's things that I'm still struggling with, that in fact there's things where I'm so frustrated with myself I cannot even like get so frustrated because I'm still doing stuff that I know I shouldn't do and I don't want to do, but I keep doing it. Like, And he's like, I'm so glad that I know you enough that I can tell you those things and you can see them because then it helps you see that this is God at work. Like, if you know me, you know there's no way this is all me. That this is only because of God. And so he says, I'm excited to boast about my weakness. Peter says that that faith in God is better than gold. And the world that we live in, this word faith is kind of an abstract thing, and we sort of understand what it means, but it, it, it also gets a little bit watered down, and it doesn't get a real concrete you know, like uh, imagery or definition attached to it. And so um, as I've really studied and dug into this, there's a word in English that actually translates better the way we'll understand it in our everyday language, and that word is trust. So I, I would just encourage you, like when you see faith as you're reading the text, when you see faith, put that word trust and, and just see how that doesn't sort of change the way you read and understand that. And so it's be like Peter saying, your trust in God's goodness and grace is better than gold. And that's something that, that God is at work in the story of the Israelites, in Gideon's life. It's about making sure, like I, he's in the process of helping them turn their hearts back to him and come back to a place of their strength is that they trust him, not that they can do it on their own, right? And so we're going to keep seeing this unpack as we go through here. Uh, Another thing that we see through this right away is that God would not uh, send salvation through human might, but the weakness of humble obedience. We're seeing this unravel in the story of Gideon. It's not about how big is your army. It's not about do you have the right training? Do you know the right, do you have the right battle strategy? 
he's giving them a lesson that, that he's going to come not through the strength of people. His strength is going to be in just humbly obeying, humbly following. We see that go throughout the entire book of Judges. It starts off with Joshua, this great warrior who's strong, leads a mighty army. He's the guy that actually God chose to, to take the baton from Moses. Like, like this is God's guy to actually lead God's people into the promised land. And he was a mighty warrior with this great, strong nation around him, trusting him, trusting God. And then we see not long into the story, things start to change. The trajectory changes from like, man, things are going so good and we have the right guy and we have the right army and everything. And we get this story of Ehud, this left-handed, potentially crippled judge that doesn't seem like he's a definition of strength by any means. And then we see Deborah, the lady judge, who teams up with the world's most wicked housewife in a tent stake, right? Like, don't go over for coffee or warm milk. We see this, and it's like, again, this isn't this picture of obvious strength, the way you would think things would go. And then eventually we see Gideon and his army whittled down to 300. And then later we'll see Samson, who is a one-man band and fights everybody on his own and does his own thing. And then we see after the book of Judges, we come to this story of this guy, David, who is small, scrawny in description, He's a shepherd. He writes music. And, 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 and God uses this boy to go against impossible odds that no one in God's nation would even attempt. And we watch as a shepherd boy takes on a giant with a slingshot and takes him out. And all Israel sits on the sidelines and watches. And it's like, we start to see this trajectory, this direction of the way God's working, the, the way he's unraveling how he works. And it doesn't make real great sense. And it's not real uh, warm and fuzzy, especially for us Americans. Like we love a, a graph, you know, the bar graphs and charts where it's like the, it starts off small and you see the incline. Like we just think more is better. Like we are just in, in, in like totally programmed to think more is better, stronger is better, smarter is better. And God's like going, hey, I don't know if you understand this, but the way my chart works, like stronger, no, weaker, yeah, weaker, yeah, like against all odds, impossible, like it makes no sense. Okay, now we've sort of got it. That's the direction. And you're looking at it going like, Whoa, wait, seriously? We see the very same thing as we look at the life of Christ, like over and over and over throughout, the, throughout Jesus' life, his weakness is revealed. And that's something that's uncomfortable to put our faith and trust in Jesus as our savior and wrestle with the fact that he wasn't strong the way we thought he could have been strong. And believe me, the Jews and the disciples wrestled with that very same thing. We see Jesus on the night that he's going to go to this trial, having this Passover meal with his disciples, and he 
does something for them that is so out of character for a strong person, the top tier, the, the, the leader of an organization. He does something that only the lowest servant or a slave would do when he washes his disciples' feet. And it is like this picture of, I'm not who you thought I was. I'm not going to operate the way you think I operate. I'm going to come in weakness and in service. Then we see in the trial where he's spit upon and mocked and beaten and hurt physically, emotionally attacked, like spiritually attacked, and it seems like he can't do anything about it. And that's like, this doesn't fit with the way I want this story to go. Even when you know the end of the story, that part of the story is no fun because it doesn't feel right. It feels like he should win that they shouldn't be able to get away with it. And then we see that he's not even strong enough to carry his own cross. He's literally, there's this physical weakness. And then on the cross itself, he's actually crucified and dies in this position with arms stretched wide, the ultimate like symbol of weakness and vulnerability. He can't defend himself, do anything about it. Like here he is, this is your savior. And it does not look strong. But it's, through the weakness of Jesus that God's strength is revealed and and God resurrects him from the dead. He is raised to life, conquers death, conquers sin once and for all. And and it's, it's through his ability to humbly obey and follow through with God's plan that we see the strength of God revealed. And, and it's because of that, that it's not, not long after that, we get to see this cool, story where Peter preaches at Pentecost and there's this huge crowd of people who recognize for the first time Jesus really is who he said he was. He really is the Messiah that the prophets have written about. He really is the Savior. And Peter can say to them, like, well, then the, the solution for where you're at is to repent and to be baptized. And 3,000 people commit their lives to Lord, and not just people, but imagine the households that they represent, the families that they'll influence, to the point where Christianity literally starts to spread in all of the right ways, and we get to hear this really cool description that they just loved each other amazingly well. They were given to each other. They were sacrificing. They were eating together. They were doing life like it was working awesome. Like That is what the power of God does when we can humbly obey and trust. And that's what we keep seeing unpacked over and over and over again throughout Judges, and particularly through this story. Um, I love this part of the story in Judges chapter 7, verse 9, um, because it's such a cool thing. It says, That night the Lord said, Get up, go down into the Midianite camp, for I've given you victory over them. But if you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura. Listen to what the Midianites are saying, and you'll be greatly encouraged, and then you'll be eager to attack. And I just think that I find it really comforting that uh, God just keeps reassuring Gideon that God's so patient with Gideon. If you remember back to the beginning of the story, when the angel of the Lord first found Gideon, where was he? Hiding in a wine press, afraid, trembling, quite sure that God was not with his people anymore. Because when the Lord says, hey, mighty man of valor, you're so awesome. I can't believe it. Like I finally met you. Dude, you are the guy, right? Like he is like affirming him, calling him out, calling out who God says he is. And Gideon's like, I think you got the wrong guy. 
Here's all the reasons why I'm not the right guy. And then he go, and then the guy's like, well, the Lord is with you. And he goes, you could have fooled me. Have you looked around? Right? Like we start off with the, with Gideon, not believing in who he is, not believing who God says he is, not believing that God's even with his people anymore. And then God just keeps patiently hanging in there with him, reassuring him, reminding him about who God is and that God is for him. And through the angel of the Lord, like, like burning up his sacrifice, just kind of helping validate for him, like, no, 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 this is really God. God's here with you. God's speaking to you. God's reminding you who he is. God's got plans for you. And so Gideon just keeps kind of coming along a little bit more and a little bit more, and God keeps reassuring him. And I think that it's such a healthy thing for us to dig into God's word and get this accurate picture of who God is and what God's like, that we make sure that we're, we're learning about what God is like how we can anticipate God will behave with us, how God will act with us, how uh, God will respond to our good times and our bad times, that we learn that from God's word. Because oftentimes we don't learn that from God's word. We, we sort of uh, project onto God what we think God will be like a lot based on our family relationships, and the relationships of people that we have when we grow up. And so the way people treat us, the way people respond to us, the way we can trust people or can't trust people, whether you like it or not, that sort of subconsciously gets attached to the way you think about God. And all of a sudden, you're thinking things about God that are holding you back because you think God's mean, and if you don't ever do it right, he's not going to be happy with you. Or if you're not working hard enough, he won't love you very much. Or if you're not humble enough, he won't really like you or use you. And you think all these things, and you attach all these things kind of accidentally. They just blur into how you think about God. And all of a sudden, your faith journey, you're walking and following God's story. And you're like, man, this is really hard. This isn't what I expected. It doesn't feel like this light burden and easy yoke that Jesus talked about. It feels hard and uncomfortable and awkward. And I don't know if I'm doing it right. And I was kind of happier before. And so maybe I don't even want to do it anymore. And it's so important that we don't let our personal life experience tell us who God is, that we let God's word tell us who God is. And we let God's story tell us how God interacts with people. Because it changes the way we grow when we're going, no, this is who I know God is. This is what I see in, story, in history. This is how God interacts and behaves with people. And what's cool about Gideon and this story with him is that God is just super patient. And he just keeps reassuring him. And he hangs in there with him. And he helps him get the right people around him. And, and that results in some great obedience and some humble obedience by Gideon. And so he tells him that, hey, there's going to be, uh, uh, he says that if you're still concerned, like he says, the battle's at hand, but if you're still concerned, if you're still afraid, then uh, go ahead and grab your a friend and go down to the Midianite camp. I, I, I want to reassure you. Like, I want to give you some reassurance that things are okay. And so he does. He grabs his friend. He goes down to the Midianite camp, and there's a weird story where he kind of sneaks into camp with his buddy, and he's trying to overhear what people are talking about in the middle of the night. He hears a couple of guys talking that are on watch in the middle of the night, and one guy says to the other guy, you're not going to believe the crazy dream I had. 
I had this weird dream that I was that I woke up in the middle of the night and this huge loaf of barley bread was flying off of the hill, coming down and smashed my tent. Like it does. I stopped eating barley bread because of this story. Just kidding. Uh, and the other guy says, well, that can only mean one thing. Because everybody knows when you dream about barley bread. That can only mean one thing. The Lord has given the Midianites over to, to Gideon and his great army. And like, this is not going to go good for us. Like, we're probably going to lose for sure. What a bizarre conversation. What was the point of that conversation? The point was that Gideon is out here with 300 guys looking at a sea of an army against him. And it's like, are you still afraid? If you are, I don't mind reassuring you. Go on down there and listen to what's going on. Like of all the places he could have went and all the parts of camp and heard any conversation, he happens to hear two guys that are having a weird dream discussion that probably God's going to win this one. I'm telling you, that is a patient God going to great lengths to reassure a scared Gideon. And I think you could expect that God would do the same thing with you when you're struggling. God's understanding. He's patient. He offers reassurance. But I think another thing we can learn from this lesson is that at some point, you have to take the risk. What we don't realize as we're going through this story, it's kind of easy to overlook it, is that when it, when it gets to the point where, where Gideon is out of the wine press, he's listening, he's confident that God was really telling him what to do. At one point in the story, it says that Gideon grabs a ram's horn, blows it, and he starts to call some of the other tribes to him. He's assembling the army. That's how he ended up with the 32,000 people that were too many. He's assembling the army. What you have to understand is this is Gideon from the smallest tribe of God's people, from the smallest family in his tribe, and he was a nobody in his family. And he grabs a ram's horn, and he starts to tell all of the other tribes, all of the other groups who are much more powerful, much more important, much more prominent, and we're full of fighting men, he's, he's calling them to arms and he's a nobody. It's like a private telling the generals, this is what we're going to do, get everybody ready, to which they all just sort of look at him and either laugh, best case scenario, they just mock him and ignore him and make fun of him. Worst case scenario, they're like, I don't think you're going to ever do that again, and let's teach you a lesson, right? Like Gideon, even just assembling the army, took a great risk. Before God even started like going, hey, we're going to whittle this down, it took risk. And then he's whittled down to the 300, and he says, if you're still afraid, of course he's still afraid. He's human. He's like, this is not good. Yeah, so he's, he goes to reassure him. But even that reassurance, it's like, are you still afraid? I, I, I'll, I have a way to give you some reassurance. That way came at a great risk to Gideon. It, it wasn't like he just sat back and God just carrier pigeoned a note to him and said, you're, hey, good news, God said you're going to win, right? Like, he didn't just get a sit. He had to step out. He had to sneak down into enemy territory, It actually took some courage and some faith and some risk. And, and I think there's a lot that we can learn as we kind of just look back over the story. It's like that's how faith works. We trust God. 
We believe he is who he says he is. We believe that he has good things in store for us because we love him. We believe that he has good plans in mind for us since before we were born, that he wants to prosper us and help us, not hurt us. We actually believe those things and our belief, our faith, our trust in him leads us to go, okay, I'm, I'm moving forward with you. I'm in, I'm following you. What's next? Show me where to go. And and God meets us there and reveals more about himself and he reassures us and he helps walk with us and then we keep stepping forward in faith and that's this picture of what it looks like to walk with God as our leader. And all too, way too often, uh, we like all the answers. We want to know all of, like, we want to be able to evaluate all the facts up front, right? Like, when we're thinking about uh, trying to figure out, are we following God, not following God? Should I do this thing, not do this thing? Like, we want all of the answers. We want to know everything about everything. We want to be able to see as far as we can see. I had a really good friend in Tennessee that uh, I, we used to have this conversation a lot. He really struggled, like, stretching in his faith, and, and we'd have faith conversations. And he would always say about himself that he had paralysis by analysis, and he would say, like, he just, until he has every detail, he can't make a decision. He can't do anything. And that was in every area of his life. We well, could imagine the people around him were a little annoyed. It was like, dude, move. Let's go. And he had paralysis by analysis. And I think a lot of people have that in our faith journey, in our walk with God. People go, like, I, like, I don't know if I want to believe in God or I can believe in God. I need more information. I need more facts. I need more apologetics. I need more evidence, right? And at some point, God's like, this thing actually starts with a step of faith. Believing Jesus is who he said he was. Putting your trust in God that his plan is good we're a lot like somebody in the dark who wants the like four million candle power spotlight so we can see like 27 miles down the road. We want to be able to light everything up and see everything and go like, I'm not sure what's over there. Boom, now I know the answer. I know, okay, now I know the answer, right? And God, God's word actually says that, he, 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 the psalmist writes that my, uh, my word is a lamp unto your feet. And in the culture that they were in, a psalmist would have been writing about a lamp. What you need to have in mind is a tea light candle that's got one of those little flames that's about a quarter inch high and it gives about enough light to maybe see where you're walking if you hold it close to the ground you're like okay right it's like that's this picture of faith of risk at some point we have to take a risk The cool thing is we can learn from Gideon's story of like, how does God respond when we take risks? So he devises this great plan where he rallies up all the stuff, the resources that were left from all the other soldiers that left. Everybody gets a clay pot, everybody gets a torch, and everybody gets a ram's horn. He's got 300 guys. He divides them up into groups of 100, and he spreads them out around the valley above the Midianite army. What you probably don't know is that when someone would have a ram's horn and a torch, to anybody else, that would signify somebody that was the leader of a battalion of soldiers. And so they would look up there and see that and go, whoa, there's a whole bunch of people with them. They had no idea. There's the only guys up there. 
right? And then they do something really strategic. They wait until this changing of the guard and the night watch. So thousands of people are on night watch. Lots and lots more are sleeping and they're spread out all over the place. So at, I don't know, two, three o'clock in the morning when they're going to switch the watch, the people that are asleep at three o'clock in the morning, what do they want to do? Unless there's somebody in here that's really weird. Sleep. You don't want to get up, right? And the people that have been on watch and it's finally three o'clock and they get a shift, like what are they doing? I want to get to bed, right? All of a sudden in the mix of that transition, they break the pots, which resembles the sound of swords clinging and being unsheathed. They blow their horns. They call the battle cry. They throw their torches up and there's chaos erupts and people that were half asleep that were getting ready to wake up see people coming towards them that they just thought they were going back to bed. Nobody knows what's going on and people just start killing each other. And one thing leads to another, and it's chaos and more chaos and more chaos until the kings of the armies of the Midianites actually like sound the retreat and say, we're losing the battle, hightail it out of here. They grab what they can grab and they start to retreat. Meanwhile, Gideon and his 300 courageous soldiers didn't kill anybody. They didn't bring anything to conquer them but candles and Horns. It's like winning a battle with a big lighter and a kazoo. And so, exactly what God said would happen like, there's no way you're going to go home singing songs about how great you are. There's no way you'll ever be able to tell about this story without talking about how amazing and how awesome God is. And that is exactly what God was trying to do is like, I'm trying to help turn the corner so that your eyes are back on me so that your faith and your trust is in me, so that you'll take a risk to follow me and go all in with me again. And so I would just say as we finish up this morning to just be wrestling with that and be thinking about what is God calling you to? Where is God maybe leading you to take a risk, to step out in faith, to grow and exercise your trust muscles? Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.